guys. Welcome to Relatable. Happy Tuesday. Hope everyone has had a wonderful week so far. We've got a great full episode up ahead. I am going to talk about this New York Times reporter that uh, had been writing for the paper for, I think, about 40 years, 30 to 40 years, a science writer. Um, The cancel mob has officially canceled him. He was fired from his job for repeating a racial slur in a particular context a couple years ago. We'll talk about the ever-changing standards of woke righteousness and why we as Christians get to get off that hamster wheel and look to real righteousness and the rest that we find in Christ. And so I'm going to talk about that story and then bring it back to the freedom that we have in the gospel. And then if I have time, it depends on how long all of that takes. I'm also going to talk to a professor from Cornell who has been, uh, he created this website to chronicle or to uh, to call out, I guess, which universities in the United States are teaching critical race theory. So you can go to this website and you can click on a state and it will tell you what uh, which universities are teaching critical race theory, and then it'll tell you which courses or which programs they have been putting on that are promoting that kind of ideology, which is really interesting. So I want to talk to him about why he created it, but whether or not that podcast is going to, or that interview will be in today's episode or tomorrow's episode will just kind of depend on how long it takes me to get through the first part of this episode. Uh, Before we get into all of that, I got to clarify some things. So yesterday I was talking about how much I learned from the book, Love Thy Body. And I said that it was a book written by Nancy Pelosi. It was not written by Nancy Pelosi. Now, all of you who have listened to me for a long time, or if you're part of my women's book club with Ali Stuckey on Facebook, you know it was written by Nancy Piercy. Um, But their names are so similar, and we have to talk about Nancy Pelosi kind of frequently on this podcast, uh, that it just slipped out and I didn't even realize Uh, And I guess no one realized on this side until one of you guys, um, until I listened to it. And then one of you guys reached out to me because I almost couldn't tell if that's really what I said. But then a lot of you guys reached out to me and uh, were like, you know, you said Nancy Pelosi instead of Nancy Piercy. And some of you got a kick out of that. But maybe some of you had no idea what I was talking about. And you really thought that I read a book about... um, theology and our our bodies and gender and sexuality written by Nancy Pelosi and that I got a lot out of it. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi should probably read Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. There's a lot of good stuff in there about how Christians should approach things uh, like abortion and sexuality and marriage and all of that good stuff. So Nancy Piercy, not Nancy Pelosi. Uh, another thing that I want to clarify or just maybe bring up is that I got a couple of angry messages, tweets, comments from people who were aghast that I said that I liked Tom Brady and that I liked um, that I liked some songs by The Weeknd. Um, and the reason why people were angry or upset that I said that I liked Tom Brady is because apparently his wife, Giselle, calls herself a witch. And I kind of heard that before. I mean, she kind of seems new age, all the stuff that she posts on social media. But I'm not saying that I think that he is like my moral exemplar or that he's my pastor or that I go to him for life advice or that I am approving of every part of his life and his belief system. 
I was just saying, I think that he comes across as a good leader and a compassionate teammate uh, to the people that he has played with over the years. And so we don't need to read into all of that. Like we understand that unbelievers are going to have different beliefs than we do. And there are things that we are still going to like about them. There are people made in the image of God and they have gifts of common grace, like talent and leadership abilities and things like that, that we can still admire because they're objectively good. As for the weekend. So I didn't bring up yesterday. Uh, some people are talking about like the satanic imagery and every year in the Super Bowl, people talk about certain kinds of satanic imagery. Now with the weekend's performance, it was weird. I remember thinking this is really weird. There was like almost this Messiah like figure that came down in the middle of the stage wearing this white robe, but it was obviously very dark and it probably was actually supposed to be demonic. I don't actually think this year that people are reading into that. Sometimes it seems like they are, but this year it kind of seems like he meant for it to be supernatural and dark and demonic in that way. And so again, I am, I'm not approving of that. I just think that he is a talented person with unique songs. That doesn't mean that I think that they are wonderful praise and worship songs that glorify God. I just think he's a talented guy. And I thought that his talent was on display, um, at least somewhat during uh, the Super Bowl halftime show. So that's all of that. When I say that I appreciate someone's talent or that I like someone in a certain way, it doesn't mean that I am approving of everything they do or everything they believe in. So for those of you who are confused about that or confused about any of those things, I just wanted to add some clarity. Okay, let's get into our first story, our story that's going to set up the rest of the podcast. A lot of you have told me, I just want to talk theology. Like I want to talk big picture stuff. I'm tired of the news. Well, this episode really will be a lot of that. And I think on Thursday is when I'm going to dedicate an entire episode to nothing to do with the news and politics. And we are going to talk about love since it is almost Valentine's Day and the theology of love. And I know that you guys are going to like that because you've been asking for that. But even today, we're not talking heavy into politics or heavy into the news cycle. There are tons of news stories that I think that we could talk about today that I want to talk about. There are some illegal immigration policies uh, that are being pushed forth that I think are important for us to talk about. There's that crazy Time Magazine article that said basically it used the word cabal, like a cabal of powerful people trying to, quote, fortify the election. Um, And of course, Trump supporters read that as, okay, so you're trying to you were trying to change the results of the election by ensuring that the laws and the voting policies and all of this were in your favor. Um, And so there's a lot to talk about, but I want to talk about this Um, example of, I think, very arbitrarily applied rules when it comes to the cancel mob and the progressive powers that be and what it means for us and what it means for our theology and then how the gospel actually saves us from the exhaustion of that because I think that this is fundamentally more important than a lot of those other news stories that I want to talk about at some point. So, This story, a New York Times reporter uh, got fired for saying the N-word a couple years ago, and I will tell you exactly what the context was, because of course, that's a terrible, 
awful word that we would never approve of saying, uh, but it matters what context it was in and uh, how this all came about, I think. So this is according to New York Magazine. Quote, in 2019, New York Times reporter Donald McNeil Jr., working as a tour guide for high school students traveling to Peru, got into an argument with several of them. The debate centered around whether one of the students' classmates deserved to have been suspended over a video that surfaced of her as a 12-year-old saying the N-word. McNeil, according to a statement released by the Times, asked about the context of the word. Was she rapping or quoting a book title or using the word as a slur? McNeil's distinction apparently made little headway with the students who accused him of using the term himself. So apparently when he was asking about the context that this 12-year-old child had apparently used this word and he actually used the full word himself. Um, Two weeks ago, the Daily Beast reported on the students' allegations. Uh, At first, Times editor Dean Baquette argued that McNeil's action was regrettable, but that he deserved another chance to learn from the mistake. But after 150 Times staffers wrote to express their outrage, McNeil resigned. In his first statement explaining his decision to retain McNeil, Baquette said, Baquette explained, it did not appear to me that his intentions were hateful or malicious. In his second statement explaining McNeil's departure, you know, after all of the reporters became outraged, Baquette wrote, we do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. Remember that phrase, we'll come back to it. The article goes on. It would be one thing to decide that not only is it unacceptable, so this is the now the, the author of this article in New York Magazine, it would be one thing to decide that not only it is unacceptable to use the slur, but it is also unacceptable to utter or mention it in any form. It is another thing to treat those two different actions as completely indistinguishable, as the Daily Beast appears to have done. What's even more troublesome is when authorities decide to apply the new norm retroactively. Remember that too, we'll talk about that. I know of a teacher who lost her job when a video uh, surfaced on social media showing her reading the word to her class. She was reading from a well-regarded book by a black author about Jim Crow era racism. The video was a decade old. And yet when it came out last summer, when student activists in the wake of the George Floyd murder were looking to bring change to their immediate surroundings, she became the proximate target. Last summer, after New York Times staffers claimed an opt an op-ed by Tom Cotton put their lives in danger. You remember that? The Times officially apologized for publishing it. Crazy. The official line is that the column failed to meet its standards, i.e. Cotton alleged that Antifa radicals had infiltrated some racial justice protests. He was right. And that its tone was, quote, needlessly harsh. Oh my gosh, what babies. As if the op-ed page had previously been devoid of harsh tones, now it is applying a no-tolerant standard toward the vocalization of racist language, quote, regardless of intent. So that, I think, was good reporting and analysis from New York Magazine. So a man who had been writing for the Times for decades was forced to resign for an account from teenagers that... Uh, he repeated this word, which is understandably off limits, is understandably a word that we don't like and that we should not condone saying, but a phrase that he was repeating for clarity. He was repeating a word that someone else had said to try to talk to these students about the question that they were posing to him. Uh, This was a word that the editor knew, Dean Baquette knew, and said 
that this uh, reporter, McNeil, had said without malice. And yet the standard apparently is that when a forbidden word is uttered, the utterance may be fireable, no matter the context, no matter the usage. And the questions that we should ask are this. Does this go for any word or is it just racial slurs? What about the C word for a woman? Like, what is the standard? Is there any setting in which an employee can repeat a word and not get fired for it, at least from the New York Times? Why shouldn't context and intent matter? Why should the word uh, why should the word said matter more than that which actually speaks to a person's character, which is why it was said and how it was said? And these standards are retroactively applied. How far do they go back? You might remember the Boeing director who had to resign last year because of an article he wrote in 1987 that women shouldn't be in military combat, which, by the way, I agree with that. They they shouldn't be. Uh, we've talked about that before. Um, this article was uncovered and he apologized and he resigned. This was an article that he wrote in 1987 of a perfectly logical and a perfectly rational position. It's Maybe it's arguable, you could say, but that women shouldn't be in combat that's a, that's a perfectly rational position to hold. Even today, he wrote it in 1987 and he was made to resign. But uh, uh, so these rules that we are retroactively applying to people who may have broken the rules before they even existed and which aren't even sensibly applied today, uh, we are saying they are absolute. I mean, it's it's quite the paradox. It's quite the contradiction that we've that we found ourselves in. Maria Navratilova, the famous female tennis player, uh, you might remember she was dropped as an ambassador of the LGBT group Athlete Ally. I think it was last year or 2019. Uh, she was targeted by transgender activist groups because she said that it is unfair for men to compete against women in tennis or in sports in general. And of course, that is true. But she was made to apologize. She was dropped from this organization that she had worked with for a very long time. But Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, said on a Zoom meeting the other day with the New York State Association for Independent Schools that he and his wife were horrified when his daughter came home and said that she was a boy. And he said that they were going to do everything that they could to affirm the goodness of being a girl. First time that I have agreed with his logic, by the way. I haven't seen any reports from CNN or MSNBC or transgender activist groups, anyone besides conservative media saying that this was problematic, that he didn't just immediately accept his daughter's declaration of being uh, a new gender. Nicole Hannah-Jones, writer for the New York Times and author of the largely fictional 1619 Project, has two tweets from 2016 that include the N-word fully typed out, which, look, I understand people argue that it's different when black people say it, and I get the argument. But remember, the statement around the reporter being fired for repeating the word in 2019 uh, was that the New York Times doesn't tolerate the use of slurs, quote, regardless of intent. And so apparently these very absolute and strict and retroactive rules are applied to some people, but not to others. Uh, If what they actually mean by regardless of intent is regardless of white people's intent, then they need to just go ahead and come out and say that. And by the way, when Nicole Hannah-Jones was asked about these tweets by a Washington Free Beacon reporter on Twitter, she doxed him by replying to the tweets by publicly posting the cell phone number um, in response to his inquiry. I mean, what just a terrible, miserable person always doing stuff like that, like cannot receive 
any pushback whatsoever. I've watched it happen many times, just so vicious. Uh, the point is the rules are different for everyone. Like they're very strict and, and they're very absolute and yet they're changing constantly and they apply to people differently based on who knows what. Uh, if you are, I guess, sufficiently woke, if you've done enough performative activism, or certainly if you're a woke person of color who has contributed to the anti-racism movement, then there are different rules for you, according to the progressive cancel mob, than for the white science reporter or the Boeing executive or the female tennis player, apparently. Uh, but if you don't fall into the right categories that the progressive cancel mob arbitrarily decides upon today, then no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of good, what kind of activism you have done in your life, you will be labeled a racist and you will be canceled or a transphobe or a homophobe, whatever it is. It doesn't matter how kind you've been to people, how well you treat people or, or your employees or, or what a good friend you are, what a nice neighbor you are, how awesome of a parent you are, how much time and energy and effort you've put into caring for the vulnerable in your community, or if you posted a black square and announced that you were going to commit to anti-racist inner work last summer on Instagram, if you say the wrong thing or if you said the wrong thing many years ago, according to today's rules, and you don't have sufficient woke credentials or you don't fall into the right intersectional categories, then you are immediately and automatically exiled. Uh, it didn't matter that uh, Navratilova, as a lesbian, had been representing LGBT, uh, LGBT issues for decades. She said the wrong thing according to today's rules. It doesn't matter that Tom Brady has played with and befriended and mentored football players of all different skin colors for decades. He is still going to be um, accused at least at least implicitly, uh, by a, a player on the losing team that uh, he called him some kind of unrepeatable slur and all of leftist Twitter is going to believe that automatically uh, because Brady doesn't hate Donald Trump enough and, and probably embodies white privilege. On the other hand, uh, if you do have the right credentials, you can say almost anything and it's ignored. For example, if you're Joe Biden, you can say things like, quote, poor kids are just as smart and talented as white kids or that you don't want your kids to grow up uh, in a school that's, quote, a racial jungle or that all gas station owners have Indian accents or saying, quote, you ain't black to black people who voted for Trump or eulogizing a former KKK grand wizard. You can do all of that if you're Joe Biden and you're fine because you have power. You say the right things now, and you are going to be in a position to be able to direct money and influence to the causes that progressive activists like. So it's all well and good. This is all what happens when right and wrong is subjective, when they're based on the latest whim of the social justice mob rather than an any grounding principle. This is a small group of loud people that directs corporate policy, that directs, unfortunately, the policies that are pushed by the Democratic Party, even sometimes the Republican Party, that are pushing particular curriculum, that are able to silence people on social media, get them doxxed, and get them fired because they hold the cultural reins. It doesn't indicate everyone on the left. It doesn't represent even, I think, the majority of the left or the majority of Democrats, certainly not the majority of the country, but they have been given power because they are told yes 
over and over again. When they want someone fired, that person gets fired. When they want a corporate policy changed or some kind of woke message displayed by a corporation, they get that. When they want the NFL to say or do something or donate money, then they get it. So just like toddlers, they are told over and over again, yes, that their that their temper tantrums are completely justified and they're going to work. And so what do they do? They pitch a fit over and over again. And they don't care who gets canceled or who gets fired in their wake. Um, now, look, I don't know that the reporter did the right thing by repeating the racial slur, even if uh, it was just a reference. I wouldn't have. Like, we all know it's an ugly, terrible word with a long, ugly, terrible history that I would prefer no one use. But I also absolutely believe in fair, even impartial standards for everyone. In objective definitions of fireable and not fireable that are defined by principles not by emotions, not by mob outrage. And I absolutely believe that intent and context matter. I believe that time matters, how long ago something was, how old you were, where your heart is, who you are now. All of these things should be factored in before making judgments and cancellations that tarnish people's reputations and in some cases ruin lives. The lack of objective standards of ever-moving goalposts is exhausting, not just with this, but with everything. What is acceptable when it comes to stances on gender, on sexuality, the family, justice, race, it seems to be changing every day. But unless these changes that we see in culture are uh, are moving toward greater conformity, to God and what his word says is good and right and true, then we as Christians do not need to worry about them because we don't abide by them because God's goalposts do not move. Let me tell you some good news. Christians do not have to try to keep up with this madness because you can't, okay? I want you to take a deep breath and I want you to realize that you cannot, you cannot keep up with the ever changing standards, with the ever moving goalposts of the progressive cancel mob. You will never say all of the right things. You will never do all of the right things. That inner work, that divesting of your privilege, the decolonizing and deconstructing of your faith, the listening and learning, the adopting the social justice language, the performative activism Uh, to try to fit in with the mainstream will never be enough. It'll never be enough. The religion of the woke is merciless. It is exhausting. It is always changing based on absolutely no grounded principle. Trying to avoid cancellation by saying and doing all of the right things to please the progressive powers that be is a hamster wheel that I am very glad to tell you, Christian, you can hop off of. Uh, We don't need the ever-changing standards of the world. We have a standard already in Christ. He set the perfect standard. He and he alone represents perfect righteousness. And if by grace through faith, you have put your faith in him, you have that righteousness, no matter what the world says. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So in Christ, you and I Christians are the righteousness of God. Already, right now, not because of anything we've done, but because what he, by grace, did for us. You are made holy and acceptable before God because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And if you follow him, if he is the savior of your soul, if he is the Lord of your life, then you have already been made perfect and completely, eternally uncancelable. 
That is good news. That's really good news. Matthew 10 says, do not worry about those who can hurt your body. Fear the one God who can throw your body and your soul into hell. And in Christ, you are reconciled to, made friends with, forgiven by the only one who has the power and the right to destroy both you and me as sinners because he is a holy and perfect and just God. Uh, And if that is true, if we are saved from that, if we are reconciled to the God, the all-powerful God who has the authority to destroy all things, to destroy you and me completely justifiably, then what do we have to fear? As Romans 8 says, if our God is for us, who can be against us? 8.33 through 35, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one, no one in nothing, no power, earthly or supernatural can separate God from his children. And this is all important because the cancel mob doesn't just go after what is objectively right and wrong. Like we know some words are wrong. We know some actions are wrong and are actually cancelable, not just according to the world standards, but according to God's standards. But when those two standards differ, uh, when worldly standards and God's standards are not the same, when the worldly rules are constantly changing and arbitrarily applied, we don't have to worry uh, about catching up with them. That is what I'm saying. And that is the relief that I'm offering in the gospel. God is the standard bearer. He is the rule maker. And Hebrews 13, 8 says that he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't have to worry about keeping up with worldly standards of wokeness and righteousness. And in fact, if we do, we will be at some point in disobedience to God because the world's definitions of righteousness, of justice, of goodness, of morality are all contradictory to God. James 4, 4 says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We don't want to be an enemy of God. We don't need or want worldly definitions of right and wrong, correct, incorrect, just, unjust. We have Christ as our standard and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we become more like him, more obedient to God, more conforming to God's standards of right and wrong, more truly biblically just, more truly biblically loving more gentle, more gracious, more generous, kinder, more in love with truth, more hopeful, more joyful. Have you noticed how unhappy some of your friends are who are chasing the ever-changing standards of worldly wokeness? How hypercritical they are of themselves and others, how unable they are to enjoy life, constantly trying to evade cancellation by saying and doing all of the politically correct things, how hard it is sometimes for them to give grace to people, to give people the benefit of the doubt, all while accusing everyone else of lacking tolerance and nuance. Like how their definition of sin and sanctification have changed, how their definitions of of justice and holiness now look nothing like the Bible's, even while co-opting some decontextualized biblical vocabulary, how how hard they feel like they have to try to prove themselves worthy and good and tolerant and open and progressive and anti-racist. And at the end of the day, they're still unsure that they've done enough to prove to themselves and to other people that they're truly righteous. Have you noticed how exhausted they are? It's because it's a trap. Because in Christ, as Christians, we are already made righteous. The fear and the trembling that we feel toward the cancel mob should be morphed into a reverent fear directed toward the God of our souls. 
God has graciously told us what standards to reach, what examples to follow, uh, what love looks like, what justice means. He has graciously revealed all of that to us in his word. There are no good ideas about morality to borrow from secular culture. A lost world has no power whatsoever to teach us about love or mercy or honesty or generosity, none. And you will be exhausted trying to learn and pass their tests, which are not fairly graded because they don't have a fair rubric. Let me read this long passage to you to remind you of what exactly the Christian is called to. I think that this is a good summary. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. You guys know I love Ephesians. Quote Ephesians all the time. Quote, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is what God calls us to. That is what God empowers us to do. The world will tell you that it's hateful, that it's not enough, that it's wrong, that your definition of love is wrong, that you have to adopt and adapt to theirs. It will beckon you to follow its guidelines, to chase after its approval. Praise God that you get to say no to that. You get to say no to the exhaustion and yes to the rest and the peace that is found in life and God. Uh, The world's burden, cancel culture's burden, the religion of progressivism's burden, uh, the the burden of of politics and trying to fit in perfectly uh, with those around you is heavy. And the yoke of those things is difficult. Jesus's burden is light and his yoke is easy. So you get to hop off the hamster wheel. You get to find peace in the fact that there is righteousness to be found in Christ and wisdom and power from the Holy Spirit that dwells in you when by grace through faith you believe in and follow Jesus. Uh, James 3, 14 through 17, I think is a perfect depiction, a perfect contrast of worldly wisdom uh, and the ever-changing standards of the outrage mob uh, with the wisdom of God and his saints. Quote, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, open to reason and impartial and peaceable. How different from the rabid approach of the cancel mob. Um, 
All right. I do have time to uh, talk to this professor from Cornell about uh, the project that he has developed, this uh, website. And it really does tie into um, what we have been talking about, what we've been talking about with the arbitrary standards of the world. You guys know we've talked about critical theory and critical race theory a lot on this podcast. It's the perfect depiction of the subjective arbitrary standards based on um based on ideas and based on a kind of partiality that is sinful. According to God, it is corrupt. It is historically inaccurate. There is no part of it that is uh, redemptive. There is no part of it that accomplishes reconciliation. Um, I want to read you this excerpt that's going to serve as our um, as our transition into the conversation that I'm about to have. And it is from Aereo Magazine. And I just thought that it was um, a, a great a great representation of uh, what critical race theory does and its consequences. And this article is titled Utopian Dreams and Totalitarian Nightmares, The Coerced Morality of Critical Race Theory. And it is by Justine Waters. So she includes an extract uh, from uh, diversity from one diversity council's cultural competence action plan for South Lake, Texas. Uh, It was presented to the local school board for adoption in August 2020. It says this. Note, microaggressions are defined as everyday verbal or nonverbal snubs or insults, whether intentional or unintentional. See, that whole thing is is a part of an ideology. It's part of critical race theory that no matter the intent, if the wrong person says it in the wrong way, the wrong time, then it is cancelable. No matter the intent, no matter the heart, no matter the context. Uh, which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized or underrepresented group membership. Uh, The article then analyzes this. Are all of us guilty until proven innocent for everything we don't do, as opposed to being innocent until proven guilty of actual harms we do cause? If so, we can only earn back our innocence by selling ourselves into permanent servitude to a utopian ideology in which we ceaselessly strive to make the world perfect. Uh, We will need to constantly seek to expose all the myriad forms of dislove that might arise in any human interaction and set about converting everyone to enthusiastic love of all that is good, according to the infallible definition of goodness decreed by an omniscient subset of perfect human beings. Social justice activists seem to be engaged in something along those lines that is an uh, extremely apt definition of critical race theory and what the social justice elites are trying to do and push perfect description of something like Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. The article says white morality is little more than slavish obedience motivated by fear and self-preservation, not virtue and its dependency on a vast bureaucracy of public surveillance, monitoring and intimidation, if not downright violence or excommunication. Identity politics is more like a theocracy or a Maoist cultural revolution than a genuine improvement on social justice. And yes, of course, this is always how it goes. This is how it's gone throughout the 20th century. I told you guys about how in the Maoist revolution and the cultural revolution in China in the 20th century, how they would have these things called struggle sessions where someone who had the wrong idea or said the wrong thing or had a dissenting opinion would be taken into the public square and would be publicly tortured, would be publicly chastised, uh, would be yelled at and would be emotionally and physically abused for having the kind of wrong idea. That's no different than the cancel mob today. 
that's no different. And remember, it's not just for things that are objectively wrong. It's also things like, uh, remember, taking care of babies, taking care of babies when uh, she was canceled and she was targeted for simply donating to the Trump campaign or uh, Dr. Crenshaw, the professor that I had on last week, who simply said, does it matter that some people don't want their daughters to share uh, bathrooms with boys? She uh, was targeted by a small but loud mob who wanted her fired from Baylor University. And so it's not an improvement on social justice. It is uh, it is much more like a heartless, puritanical uh, theocracy, something that you would see in the Scarlet Letter more than any kind of progressive or tolerant utopia or some kind of evil Maoist revolution, which killed, by the way, tens of millions of people throughout the 20th century. It's not good. Don't be fooled by it, Christian. And thankfully, through the gospel, we have an escape from it. You get to get off the hamster wheel. All right. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about critical race theory and how it's infiltrated colleges and what we can do about it with Professor William Jacobson, Cornell Law School professor. Here he is. Just kidding. I have one more thing to say before we get into that interview. Got to tell you guys about just this precious, sweet, and wonderful sponsor that I have. And that is Annie's Kit Clubs. They provide a subscription box for both boys and girls that comes with a woodworking kit uh, that has a different project, a different woodworking project every month in this little kid size hammer. And it's really safe. It's not like they're, you know, you have to have like a drill and all of these different parts and tiny pieces. It really can be done with limited supervision for most kids. And this is a great way to keep your kids entertained while you're cooking dinner, whether if you're working from home, whatever you're doing, rather than just, you know, handing them the iPad or handing them the phone or turning on the TV. This is a great way for them to stay entertained and for them to be intellectually stimulated, um, even as they're having a lot of fun. So this is just a great option to entertain kids and to make sure that they're getting those real life skills, those hands-on skills of being able to create something and problem solve. It just works so many different parts of their brain in a way that I think is really, really edifying. Um, They also have Annie's Creative Girls Club that sends two fun craft projects every month. Uh, So like beading, painting, different things like that. Uh, The kind of art projects that typically girls really like. And uh, new projects come every month. And so you don't have to worry about constantly getting, uh, you know, uh, new toys to make sure that your child is entertained. You get the subscription box for a really good deal. And every month they've got a new project to work on. So go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. That's Annie's A. N N I E S Kit Clubs dot com slash Allie A L L I E save seventy five percent off your first shipment. That's Annie's Kit Clubs dot com slash Allie save seventy five percent off your first shipment at Annie's Kit Clubs dot com slash Allie. Okay, now for real, here is the professor. Professor Jacobson, thank you so much for joining me. You started this website, criticalrace.org. Can you tell us what it is and and why you started it? Sure. Well, the what it is, it's a website devoted to documenting critical race training on campuses around the United States. And what it is, is we have a map of the United States. We have uh, various 
school entries and you can hover over the map and click on your state and click on your school and see what activities they have going on. Now, some of the activities you may like, some of the activities you may not like. It's actually a very neutral database. Well, we have our own views of critical race training and we don't think it's helpful to education. Nonetheless, this is a resource that really anybody can use and that's why what it is. Um, most of what we have on there are things the schools tell themselves, the schools tell their students. Everything is sourced and everything is linked, no rumors or anything like that. And so there's a link for everything and you can see what's going on. Now, this is not a list of schools to avoid. We don't take a view on any particular school. It's really a resource for parents and students so they know what they're getting themselves into if the student attends this college. Now, the reason I created it was I've been watching a lot of these developments over the years and I follow them. I have a website called Legal Insurrection and we have followed these things, but it really crystallized last uh, spring in June when the president of Cornell University assigned as suggested reading to the entire campus, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. Mm. And in fact, that book was going to be the basis for summer discussions at Cornell University. And they made it available to everybody free of charge online, electronically. So I went and I read it and I was actually pretty shocked because the philosophy there is quite discriminatory. It's actually the opposite of what Cornell's non-discrimination policy is. He explicitly advocates current discrimination in order to remedy past discrimination. So it's an advocacy for discrimination. It also sets up a very coercive paradigm, which is you are either anti-racist, and that's the word, or you are racist. There's no in between. So the traditional American civil rights notion of treating people fairly without regard to skin color, et cetera, has no place in that universe. You're either with them or you're against them. And if you're not with them, you are racist. He refuses to recognize any concept of being non-racist. A non-racist is somebody who simply goes around treating everybody fairly, treating everybody weak, uh, you know, uh, equally, is in fact racist unless they become an act activist. So this was very alarming to me. That was furthered when in July of that year, the president of the university announced that she was starting an initiative to push anti-racism teaching and training into every aspect of the university. Now, she left the details to be worked out by the faculty, Senate and others, but the by topics, it included curriculum, possible mandatory course requirements for students, possible mandatory training for faculty. And so this was extremely alarming to me. But and so we started to look into critical race training, anti-racism training and gather the data. But what really pushed us over the edge to starting this website is feeding off of what the university had announced. Several hundred faculty, students and staff signed an open set of demands in September. Fulfilling or calling for the university to fulfill this anti-racist initiative. And those some of the things they called for included explicit discrimination 
in hiring and promotion. Racial, they called for racial discrimination in promotion and hiring, that certain people of certain races should be hired and promoted above others, which is completely shocking because that's actually illegal. Um, what's even more shocking is that numerous law school faculty signed on to this, and uh, now it's over at the faculty senate. So it actually, and I've gone back over my timeline here, actually was after the September set of demands that we made the decision to construct a separate website because we don't feel that parents and students know what's going on. The way I was feeling is somebody applying to Cornell has no clue what is really going on on this campus. I'm not saying they shouldn't apply. All I'm saying is people need to know and that's what our website does. And tell me what you think the practical implications of this kind of anti-racist theory would be. Obviously, uh, discrimination, at least when it comes to admissions or when it comes to um, choosing faculty. Uh, What other consequences do you think this has for students, for society in general, if we are saying the only way to rectify past wrongs is to now commit wrongs against other groups today? Right. And now that you mention it, I haven't thought of it this way. This whole philosophy is essentially two wrongs make a right. Right. Uh, which we've all been taught or most of us have been taught as children is not actually a, a good thing. Uh, and so what I think it does, is it really creates a fissure in on campus because you are either with them or you are against them. And if you're against them, by definition, you are racist. Mm -hmm. Forget about what your views actually are. Forget about how you conduct your life. And so you set up this conflict on campus of the anti-racist versus the racist, but it's completely uh, constructed by them. It's it's not reality. Most people on campus are non-racist. They go about their life. They don't get involved in politics. They don't get involved in activism. They treat everybody fairly. They don't discriminate. That whole cohort of people who might, who is almost certainly a majority of students on campus are now branded racist. And that is a coercive tool that is used for political purposes on campuses. It's, we see it all the time, but particularly this year, It's us versus them. And I think that's entirely uh, negative for a campus. It's also very coercive. You don't learn things by being coerced. The school might be able to force you as a freshman or sophomore to take a course where they teach this stuff. And we all know the vast, vast majority of students are just gonna sit there and shake their head and go along to get along because they don't wanna be called names, but it doesn't change any minds. It doesn't convince anybody. It perpetuates what's been going on that they claim is negative. So I think what's the downside? It brands people who are not racist as racist because that's the way they've constructed it. It demonizes large sections of the campus. It coerces large sections of the campus and it doesn't change any minds. I don't know how it could get any worse than that. Right. And we kind of skipped skipped by in academia or just in society in general, in politics, in the social and cultural sphere, uh, the debate of the premise of critical race theory, which is that America, even in 2021, is systemically and pervasively racist. And therefore, everyone in particular who is white is at least complicit, if not actively a part of all of these racist systems. And you could see how if you believe that, and that is your premise, how people who don't fight to dismantle that kind of systemic racism 
Um, in the same way that you would say someone who sees bullying happen and just walks right by it, well, that's not enough. You need to fight against that bully. Um, you could see how Ibram X. Kendi goes to his... Um, gets to his conclusion, if you believe in the premise that America is systemically racist, racist in 2021. But I would say that is debatable at best, and we're not even allowed to push back against that premise to say, is America in 2021 systemically racist to where we actually do need to discriminate against other other groups in order to make other groups feel better or to lift them up, Right. That's right. They set the parameters of the conversation. Right. And the parameter of the conversation is that we need to upend our society because it's systemically racist. Now, I don't accept that that's true. There may be inequalities. There are inequalities in many aspects of life. But systemically, we're actually anti-racist. We have laws. We have true. enforcement. We have bureaucracies. Um, the law does not sanction racism. That is what a systemically racist society would be where the law actually uh, upholds racism, and it doesn't here. So it, it's not a systemically racist. That's not to say there aren't things that can be improved, but they have created this construct where everything needs to be torn down, and if you're standing in the way of that, you must be complicit in the system. And if you are supporting the system, they call you a white supremacist. Now, I'm old enough that when people, when I grew up and people were called white supremacists, it was people who had explicitly racist views. Right. Um, it was not people who simply uh, support the existing system we have, maybe want to improve it, maybe want to, you know, do other things. And, and so they, they demonize people and they try to set people back on their heels by applying phrases to them and characterizations to them, which are not actually accurate. And I think the one thing you've pointed out, the systemic racism is a very pernicious view of things, because if that is the truth, then everything needs to be torn down. And we know that's not true. We are a system which tries to enforce non-discrimination. We have non-discrimination laws. Campuses, more than anything, have enormous bureaucracies devoted to non-discrimination. It's the priority on virtually every campus on this country. Uh, so I think that this notion that we need to tear everything down and we need to brand everyone who doesn't agree with us as a racist is so pernicious. And it's really, I think, tearing a lot of campuses apart. Yeah. And, you know, I think some people would argue that there actually is discrimination on college campuses, but it's not against um, it, it. It's against groups like Asian Americans, perhaps, or white Americans in the uh, admissions process. There have been people that argue that that is actually a form of institutionalized discrimination and racism against groups that are typically not seen as the victims um, of that. And so that would meet Ibram X. Kendi's definition of what it means to be anti-racist, to actually discriminate, to try to make up for past discrimination. Um, my last my last question for you is what parents and what uh, potential university students need to be on the lookout for when they're trying to figure out if the college that they are applying to, um, if it teaches things like this, because a lot of times it's covered in euphemisms like diversity and inclusion training. What do they need to be looking for? Right. I think you're right. They use the euphemism of diversity, equity and inclusion. And equity is the key word because equity does not mean equality. A lot of people mistake that. They think equity, equality, it's the same thing. Equity is uh, equal results. 
And that's why sometimes in Kendi's view and other views, you have to discriminate to get those equal results because we know historically for reasons that have nothing to do with race, that different groups perform differently in different aspects of society. And that's a, a natural occurrence. It's not necessarily the result of racism. It's re, or the result of a complicated set of factors. On campuses now, and there have been lawsuits against Harvard, There's, which I think is there is a lawsuit against Harvard that I think is going to end up in the U.S. Supreme Court challenging the affirmative action that Harvard has. And the people who were most discriminated against statistically uh, were Asian Americans or people of Asian descent who had to receive some enormous multiple uh, higher on SAT scores and grades to be treated fairly, who had a one-tenth chance with the same grades and SAT scores of getting in. And that's really at the forefront. And that really shows the complexity of this issue, that the, there are systems in place now meant to address historic discrimination, which themselves may be discriminating. And the courts will have to decide that. But that is, I think, one of the conundrums here is, and we saw this out in California where there was a proposition passed, I think it was 30 years ago, I might be off on the number of years, to essentially do away with affirmative action in yep. higher ed admissions uh, as discriminatory. So it basically said you cannot discriminate on the base of race and other f factors in admission. And that essentially did away with affirmative action. And there was just a proposition this year, in a year when Biden won, where they were gonna undo that and they would now allow uh, discriminatory admissions practices. And it lost significantly in California. So I think you know we have to sometimes put aside the people who run the campuses and the student activists who run the campuses from the rest of the population. I don't yes. believe a lot of these practices are actually popular in the general population. They're, I don't believe they're popular among non-whites even, because I think most people in the country recognize that discrimination is a bad thing, no matter who it is against. And I don't think that a lot of other racial or, or ethnic minorities necessarily adopt these proposals because they statistically have been the victims over the last several years. Yep, you're absolutely right. I think most people agree that meritocracy is fair. Most people agree in true equality, not this convoluted definition of equity. Most people agree that we shouldn't be discriminating against any group um, in pursuit of some kind of cosmic, intangible, anti-racist uh, justice, or Ibram X. Kendi's definition of justice anyway. Um, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for creating this website. Um, uh, send anyone, uh, you know, anywhere that you want them to go to your your websites sure. or to any work that you've written, tell them how they can support you. Sure. The, the website that we just created is called criticalrace.org. My main website is legalinsurrection.com. That's legalinsurrection.com. That's a politics and law website, which deals with a lot of other issues. Or you can just Google my name and you'll find out plenty about me. Some good, some not so good. Well, thank you so much, Professor. Mm -hmm. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Great. Take care. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed that episode. I was just thinking as he was talking in that interview, just how opposed that idea uh, that Ibram X. Kendi and many critical race activists posit how opposed it is to Christianity that, yes, it is enough to love God and love your neighbor. People who want to cast Jesus as this kind of 
uh, social justice revolutionary who dismantled all of the systems that we don't like. It's just not what we read in God's word. It is enough to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, no matter what they look like, no matter what their background is. Remember, God's definition of justice is both truthful and impartial. It doesn't discriminate against people based on what they look like or based on how much money they have, no matter their status. And so it is diametrically opposed to what we believe is good and right and true. Once again, I'm encouraging you, get off the hamster wheel of uh, woke definitions of righteousness. They're ever-changing, and quite frankly, according to God, they're not righteous, but we do have objective truth and standards in God's Word, and hallelujah, praise God for that. All right, we will be back here tomorrow. 